Hi, this is Steve Addison and you're listening to The Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're in Southern California talking to Frank Shatner about his journey in multiplying disciples and churches. You'll find links to Frank's resources at movements.net and in the show notes. I I became a Christian by reading the Bible to see if it's true. I came very to scripture very skeptically. I was a biology major at the University of Massachusetts in the 70s, and I was searching for God. I thought evolution did not have any basis in science no matter what the professors were trying to tell us. So I searched the scripture, and by reading the scripture, I became a Christian on my own. Two years later, I went to the University of Massachusetts, and God challenged me. Frank, I brought you here. Do you want to, will you work with me to bring the gospel to all these students you see outside your window? And I was very scared about that, And but I said, yes, but Lord, uh, bring someone else with the same mindset and same passion. That same day, a guy down the down the hall, chemical engineer major, uh, said he came to my room, basically uh, said he was a Christian. So God answered my prayer within 24 hours. And he and the team of navigators, they had a vision to reach the campus. At the In my junior year, he gave me a book, Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliott. And I read that story. I was in shock. And I remember praying to God, Lord, if you ever want to use my life to reach unreached people groups like the Aka Indians, I'd be willing to do that. I graduated, moved from Massachusetts in the East Coast to California. Three years later, I went to my first missions conference. At that missions conference was a guy named Jim Yost. Do you know Jim Yost by any chance? He was a speaker. He sent out from the same church uh, my wife and I are sent out. And he says, you guys... Give generously. You guys are good prayers, but God is calling some of you to stand up and and serve God on the foreign mission field to preach the gospel to unreached people groups. The Holy Spirit right then and there said, Frank, remember that promise you made two, three years ago in the library reading that book? You go up right now. And I want to obey God more than anything. So I went up and that's how I got involved. And because I had to find God on my own, Uh, and read the scriptures on my own, I made up my mind, if anybody wants to hear the gospel anywhere at any time, I will go there. So that that motivated me. And then being discipled by the navigators through this guy particularly, they really drilled uh, 2 Timothy 2-2 in our head. And that was just my my DNA. So the my my I God saved me. I could feel the chains of bondage Mm -hmm. lifted from me unleashed from my wrist and my ankles and God set me free to serve him and I feel so indebted to God for his mercy and grace to have a a young guy reaching out to God where are you where are you and then I found him in in the scriptures and I made up my mind that I would serve him with all my heart and because of my experience with learning second Timothy 2 2 and then reading Elizabeth Elliot's book and meeting uh Jim Yost those are all the things that fired me up that I was willing to go anywhere where the gospel was not preached. And my, uh, fortunately, I married a wife that had the same passion and vision.
Well, it started around the early uh, 90s when my family and I were living in the Golden Triangle. We were living with a tribe called the Hmong people, uh, and we live right along the border. We believe God wanted us to move into that village because it was a very good kind of base from which to work from. We were very close to the Laotian border and the Myanmar border, which used to be called Burma. And Thailand, uh, Myanmar, and Laos, as you well know, makes the triangle, and it's not too far away from China as well. But there's a lot of Hmong in that area. And our kids were little, and they all grew up in a Hmong village at that time. Okay. So we were very much close to the community. Uh, all of our training and all of our beginnings all had to do with, we were, we were trained mostly, mostly as traditional missionaries. So in other words, uh, incarnation of the gospel, living closely with the people, learning their language and culture and working very closely with uh, the local people. And so that as, as that as a baseline, uh, we would often pray with the Hmong that we would like to reach Hmong across the borders. And uh, I was already I was trained by the navigators when I was a student at the University of Massachusetts. So we already had that idea of. Uh, Second Timothy two of reproducing your lives and other people. So that that DNA was always embedded in me. But uh, the with the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, a lot of the cash from that kind of supported the economy in Laos from the Soviet Union that all disappeared. So the Laotian government decided to uh, open up the border, and one of the border crossings was right near our village, only an hour north of us. And I heard about it when we were we would have monthly meetings where the head of every house would have to come to the the, the village meeting, and the headman there was uh, explaining all that was going to happen. And the Lord just prompted me, "Well, you, you uh, we've been praying to get over across the border there. Well, why not go?" So uh, they made it. The government made it very efficient. You could go to this town called Chiang Kong, which I just mentioned is an hour north of us. And you could take your passport and within a day do a travel agent uh, at that uh, town of Chiang Kong, you could get a visa. So I called uh, a British friend of mine. He was a brilliant linguist working on Hmong languages. And I contacted the head of the Hmong church in Thailand. We all decided to trek across there. During, what we did is we traveled through northern Laos and then we went north. Uh, from uh, north from there, and we entered the southernmost part of China. We had Chinese visas in our passports. And we were exploring and praying and surveying the language. We knew there were several dialects. We needed to think of how we we're going to engage all these people. A long story short, it was a miraculous trip mm -hmm. of over of probably about 3,000 kilometers. We traveled all the way through the back country, all the way up to Kunming. And one of the reasons why we did that was two reasons. One, the Chinese government would not let any foreigners go south of Kunming. So we decided, well, we're just going to go from the southernmost part and come up from the south. And that there's interesting stories with all of that. Maybe we'll have time to talk about it. But the point of it is, was that we wanted to survey, survey the situation even on even though we lived in a very rural, remote area on the Thai side, and we talked to the Hmong about crossing the borders, it's one thing to talk about it. Mm. It's one thing to be in a church in Sydney, for example, with a nice band, nice carpet, comfortable chairs, and praise God 
and have a vision and cry out to God for the nations. But it's a total different ball game when you actually go out there and, and look at the situation. During that time also, we had some Hmong come from Laos to our village. Our village was known as the center of the Hmong church at that time in that, that region. And they would explain the police chasing them, all these other things going on. So when I took this trek and we went through there, we we surveyed so many dialects. It's, it's just a wonderful story of God's miraculous leading. We relied on that verse where God says in Isaiah 30, 21, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk mm. in it. So we would open up a map every day, ask God where we should go, and God would just lead us. Again, Ultimately, when we finished the trip and I came back to Thailand, I was convinced of one thing, that this job was very impossible. So in light of what I saw and in light of talking to the Hmong that were coming over from Laos, I realized that if, if we were really going to evangelize these people, we would need to do a church planting movement. Now, I, I wrote that up and I talked about it. But I never met, I never read Garrison's books and read, uh, met any of the IMB folks. So when I did meet them and they asked me what I was trying to do, they, I said, we need a church planting movement. And they asked me, did you study with any of these guys or anything? And the answer is no. Now, the reason why that is very important is I got into movements because I thought that was the best strategy based in scripture if we really wanted to evangelize rapidly all these different Hmong groups scattered throughout this region, and there are millions of them. So that's how basically we I started getting into getting into it. And then over time I met people like Curtis and we worked closely together, Bill Smith, David Garrison, uh David Watson, all you, <laughs> you know, all these people I, that the gurus. I, I think I'm in the second or third wave after uh, those guys. <laughs> Well, not in your writing. Everybody loves what you write, and everybody speaks very highly about it, including myself. Yep. When I got back to my village, I had my I, I I get up early to pray and to read the word, and I was going through my annual Bible reading, and I and I'm always on my knees praying quietly in the early morning hours before my kids in the village wakes up and all that. And I also spread out the map that I I used when we were trekking through that that region that I was talking about. Uh, and I was asking God, how should we do this thing? This thing is insane, you know. Uh, but the reading that time for that day was First uh, Samuel chapter fourteen, and that is the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. And what that story pointed out, and the Holy Spirit really impacted me on these several ideas. When I'm reading the story, I see Jonathan and the armor bearer stepping out on faith, and in verse six they say. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. When they stepped out by faith, there was four movements. The well, first movement was among the enemies of God. The second movement was Saul and his uh, leaders that were worshiping under the tree. Uh, then there was a movement among the, the leaders of God. They were outside the will of God. They were engaging in a religious ceremony, but they weren't really in tune with what God wanted to do, whereas Jonathan and his armor bearer were in tune. The third movement that a lot of people don't notice, there was Hebrews fighting with the Philistines. So 
there was the disgruntle of God, I like to call them, disgruntle of God. They joined into what God was doing in, a, in the third movement. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth movement was the people, the, the, the everyday people that were hiding in caves. They heard all the commotion and uh, they poked their heads out of their caves. And they asked what's going on, and they say, and they heard that the, the 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 army of God is vanquishing the enemies of God. So the average person got involved with movements. So this idea had a very huge impact, and that's when we started the Jonathan Ministry. At that time, we were still with missionaries with OMF, and they let us explore all this. And then the, eventually, the Jonathan went global. Long story short, a lot of Hmong have come to know Jesus. Among many dialects, what we found out there's about 35 different dialects. I also study linguistics, by the way, and we 35 dialects. And what we could see was that there was groups of dialect that had mutual intelligibility. And what we we're able to do is take those 35 dialects of far western Hmong, just far western Hmong. Those were the ones mostly related to our, the dialect we spoke. And so we were able to take those 35 dialects and put them into seven groups. And then I recruited workers uh, to uh, to lead uh, outreaches to see movements start in each of those seven groups. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. There's a lot among that are believers that are scattered all over the place now. Where there was very few, there's very many. When we li we actually lived in China and we worked with the big flowery Hmong, and we trained them to reach uh, the um, what we call Hmong Sao, Hmong Sao. And they were the they were the last group of Hmong that was unengaged out of the 35. They were the last groups that was unengaged. So with the big flowery Hmong, we trained them to reach the Sao Hmong earlier on. You know how God works. He gets you going in a certain direction, but he has a lot of surprises along the way. And this was a big surprise. My goal with doing the Jonathan was to just as a, they made me what they call a strategy coordinator. They got that from the IMB. And they say, you're a strategy coordinator for the Hmong. And I realized that we could not do things the same way we were doing things, working with the Hmong in Thailand. It is a totally different environment, totally different landscape over there, mostly because of the political persecution of, of the governments against any Christians or any uh, spread of the gospel. So we knew we needed to work differently. The, the cornerstone of all of that was uh, movements. But uh, uh, anyways, chronological Bible teaching was a big part of it. My book, uh, The Wheel Model, talks all about that. Uh, so we they they made us the strategy coordinators, and we knew we needed to do things different. So I just wanted to train the the Hmong, the Hmong teammates, particularly the new recruits that I was bringing on. Some of them were Chinese from uh, East Malaysia, by the way, that that did a fantastic job. Uh, so uh, I thought I was going to do that. But then some of these other teams within OMF said, hey, we, we want to learn this stuff, too. Long story short, we started working with more teams within OMF. And then there were there were other fields within OMF that were working in East Asia, Cambodia, Philippines, so on and so forth. They said, we want to learn this as well. 
And then there were non-OMFers that were, were working in East Asia said, we like to learn this thing as well. And then there were uh, people from India, like the Mizo, that were missionaries in North Thailand. They said, this is fantastic. This is what we need to train our mission. So we started working in uh, West Asia. Then organizations like Team Expansions, they say, we want to learn this stuff. So I taught them. And then they said, this is so good. We want to use it in all our fields around the world. And before you know it, Jonathan Training and Jonathan Project became a global movement in itself. So we had movements among people groups, but we also had the the, the Jonathan Project itself became a movement, which was a big surprise. Mm. Mm. So, you know, West Africa, uh, I don't know, so many places, Venezuela, Argentina, all these countries, Brazil, they started learning Jonathan, learning multiplication principles. And uh, it just kept on growing. And I still have a strong affinity to East Asia, obviously. That's where my training, my expertise is. But I said, I'll serve you guys in any way you want me to serve you. So it just, that's how it grew. Okay. One big principle that we did on the train training is I strongly emphasize with everybody, we don't want to be the sole experts running around training everyone. What we'll do is we'll train people that want to learn and then model assist watch and leave them as well. So the movement multiplied naturally. So we have Jonathan trainers all over the whole world. No one gets paid. We just They just do it because they love the Lord, and this is a very good strategy. Long story short, within the Jonathan Project executive leadership team, like Curtis and Eric were part of that as well, we were praying about 10 years ago, Lord, what do you want us to do over the next 10 years? And the Lord gave us this vision of hill, you know, take the hill from the Jonathan story where Jonathan took the hill with his armor bearer. Take the hill 111. Go to the website, hill111.com. Well, the Lord, okay, this is insane. Okay, I'll be really honest with you. You don't have to believe it. But the Lord by the Holy Spirit says, plant 1 million churches among 1,000 unreached people group all in one decade. Well, that that 10 years ended uh, in April. Over 2 million churches have been recorded to be, has started. Over 1,045 people groups. And that all happened in, in, in a 10-year period. So God blew all those numbers away. And, it, and, and the thing is, is that we really emphasize the ordinary person. And uh, that's what happened. Wow. <laughs> I know. That sounds crazy, but we believe God wanted us to do that, and we tried that. One of the things, that's how the Zume emerged out of that as well. We began to ask three big questions. Lord, what is it that you want us to do and continue that we're doing now that you want us to continue to do? Second question, what are we doing now that you don't want us to do anymore? And the third thing, what? and this is the hardest question to answer, what are we not doing that you want us to do? So that's where Zume came out and so many other things came out of that. Hill 1-1, all of that. And it's just, uh, all I can say is it's a, it's been a great ride. It has nothing to do with our ability. We have strengths. We have visionary people. You know, you know these people yourself. Mm-hmm. But uh, we just... 
where where we could actually count numbers and record. That's what we put into the hill one one one. And the uh, like, for example, some of the best church planters were these single Filipino gals. Okay. What's nice about it? Anybody could go to the website and add their numbers mm. to the total, and that made the that made the average person feel like they're part of a global movement. It wasn't some big shot saying, "Okay, give me your numbers, and then we take credit for their work." It's nothing like that at all. No one took credit except Jesus. So some of our best church planters were these young gals in their early twenties uh, planting churches. And another story in the, from the Philippines, there was a pastor who got Jonathan training and he taught his congregation to be uh, Jonathan's as well. Because Jonathan is also a mindset. Jonathan, mm-hmm. said, Jonathan said, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many <laughs> or by few. So those are the kind of people we, we were looking for. We encouraged. Uh, we weren't sure who they were. So we just trained everybody that wanted to learn. But getting back to the story. The pastor one day asked his congregation, which was numbering about 50 to 75 in a more, you know, on the countryside type of church. And the pastor said, okay, we all got this. We've got this training. You're out there working. I want to pray for all of those that are involved with evangelism and multiplying their lives and the lives of others and trying to start other groups. So you all come up here and we're all going to pray for those people. Well, after about five minutes, the only people sitting in the pews were two little kids wow. that didn't know what was going on. The rest of them were everybody in the church was saying, we're on mission for God. So that that's an example. Sure. Can I show you another quick example? Sure. Of what? Yeah. In Venezuela, Team Expansion has a great work there. I went down there and helped them with some of the, their training. We're up in Juarez. We did training there. And... Uh, Anyways, uh, over time, the the leadership of the church, they had some churches that were planting and they were building on those. They were teaching those people in those already established churches, like 30 churches, how to be involved, be Jonathan's. Anyways, the elders of one church challenged their congregation. Let's trust God that we as a congregation going to share Jesus 1,000 times this month. So they put that out there for the believers. And for that month, anytime the members came to church, the people at the doors and the elders would count. How many times did you share the gospel? With how many people did you share the gospel with? Now, some people shared one-on-one. Some people stood up on a bus full full of people and shared the gospel there. Hmm. Long story short, they were over 2,000 that month, the number of people they shared the gospel with. Uh, and that was a February, so that was the short month. After a couple of months, they were up to four, 5,000 per month that that one congregation was sharing, uh, the number of people they were sharing. Well, the Fidelis was a natural outgrowth of the Hill 111. When we have evaluated what was needed in terms of training and talking to the local believers, they said, hey, we want to do some, we want some higher level training. Long story short, we made it a master's level and we emphasize highly portable and highly affordable. So when we saw all these things going on around the world, 
There was various levels of training. One training that was lacking was more of a seminary type training. And this is what those leaders really wanted. Also looking what was going on in the church in the West, we felt like there needs to be a mindset difference of how we operate in the church in the West as well. So between those two things, we, we started a curriculum that is highly portable. That means it's all online. And highly affordable means that it's tuition free. The only thing that people pay is a one hundred dollar enrollment, and they pay for their books, which is about four hundred and fifty U.S. dollars. So the way students study is they enroll, they become part of a cohort, basically a study group, and the and the students stay together all the way through. And uh, they study during the week, and then the cohort leader, and I've led many groups myself. We would help them integrate the materials, integrate the materials. Now, there's five core areas in the in the Fidelis curriculum. There is the theology part where we emphasize the meta narrative of scripture. There's the public policy where we talk about how we integrate faith in practice and speak out into the public square. So we do a lot of history, how the church did that over history. We emphasize DMM, where we emphasize the Zume. We emphasize books like yours, for example. We educate them first, and then they go through Zume, then they got to do that. Then we emphasize spiritual formation, which is we memorize scripture. We really emphasize memorizing scripture. And then we talk about personal wellness. You got to be in shape to be strong. So those are the five areas that we integrate. There is no block courses. There is no talking heads lecturing at you. They watch videos, read articles, read books, uh, YouTube. They watch, you know, Bible Project. That's pretty popular right now. Yeah, that's a, that's a big part of the, mm. the uh, theology curriculum. But it is the only curriculum out there that supports movements and obedience-based training. It's the only one. And that was one of the another reason that motivated us to start this uh, training is, as you well know, you could have local workers. They're doing well. They're multiplying. They're committed to movements. They say we want to go off to uh, seminary to get more training. What happens when they come back? They don't do that any stuff that stuff anymore, right? And then the second thing is you have missionaries wherever they come from around the world. They get theological training, but there's 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 no movements, uh, ideas, concepts uh, that they're training or anything like that. So all of these things uh, 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 motivated us to start this online seminary. And another reason why we do online is we're not going to build bricks and mortar all over the place. We didn't want to have a traditional Bible schools, bricks and mortar, and we didn't want to try to reproduce a traditional Bible school or seminary education on the website. We wanted to do things that were really, really different that we thought would be a lot more helpful. So that's what we've done. And uh, we've got people, you know, Isaac uh, working in West Africa by any chance. He's seeing a lot of movements with the team expansion folks there. Is that Terry and Amy Rowe? That's right, Terry and Amy. Yeah, I, I haven't met Isaac, but I, okay. I know Terry Amy and Amy. Amy is a graduate, and she's a cohort leader. <clears throat> Isaac was one of the first graduates that we had mm -hmm. with two other Chinese students. 
so this is an example. Isaac was one of those guys that told us he really wants something they can sink their teeth in. And they like the combination of all those five core areas that I talked about. So, so that's some. Um, we have an Olympic gold medalist, uh, American Olympic gold medalist. Uh, she uh, she is a chaplain for the United States uh, track and field Olympic team or national team. She's almost done with the course. She wants to learn how to, you know, get a theological education. And we we got a Ukrainian pastor uh, that that's taking it, and he, they really love all the integration of theology with philosophy, public policy, movements, and all that. I believe we stress Christian activism, but our Christian activism is what the church always believed Christian activism should be. Share the gospel with people that don't know. We want to raise up a new generation of uh, of leaders that can that can answer uh, well challenge the status quo that we see in the world today with the rapidly changing culture. That's why we call it Fidelis Faithful. So the commissioning of all our graduates, we always stress with them: faithful. We want to we want to defend the faith, dude. One three. We want to live out the faith, and we want to spread the faith courageously and without apology. So, with the like church history that we study and integrate in it all, you know, they know what that means. You know, we're willing to suffer for the faith. Philippians one twenty nine has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. So they're prepared. One of the last readings that they read is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, "The Cost of Discipleship." the The cost of disciple means to suffer, to die, to suffer. Yes, we decided to do it all in English. English is widely used. And a lot of these guys that really want to shake up the world for the kingdom, they have decent English. So we say, hey, look, if you want to uh, apply to Fidelis, you can. You have to take a simple English test. And if you love God, you want to give your best effort in your studies, you want to serve him, and your English is good enough, we'll let you in. So we say there's a low bar getting in, but there's a very high bar to get out. <laughs> it's not easy to finish the course. They, it's amazing the feedback we get from our students. That's all I can say. They love the integration of these five core areas. And they will say their understanding of Scripture goes way, to, way up, particularly in the area of the meta narrative, which is emphasizing God's mission. Your 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 last book that you just mentioned sounds like that's what you're uh, aiming at. They are highly educated that God is a God. God is a missionary God, and you understand that and everything that that means. So they're totally convinced, and they're totally convinced that God wants to see movements happen. So th those are the things that they really convinced about. So their understanding of Scripture goes way up. Their spiritual discipline because they need to study scripture regularly and memorize scripture regularly. They say that has a huge impact. Even when they do the personal wellness, exercising and things like that, the students say all we think about all the time is God. Hmm. And we understand God's missionary plan. And now we understand our role in that missionary plan. And they can defend that. They can a reminder that my latest book, Acts and the Movement of God, is now available. If you've got a copy and you're enjoying it, then why not spread the word on uh, social media or leave a review on Amazon? It really helps. Thanks. I'm Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. Mm -hmm.